0: If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Continue in Acts. So we'll be for the next year. Chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what they had, uh, or what they had said, pleased the whole whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, or sorry, Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid, hands, uh, laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word, and you may be seated. <clears throat> well, this week, we only have seven verses, so you might think we'll have a shorter message tonight, but probably not. Uh, As we jump into chapter 6, here, last week as we we finished chapter 5, we uh, talked about a cycle that we could start to decipher in Acts. I think it's worth noting where we are in that cycle for this part of Acts. Chapter 6 is actually a kind of a hard pivot in the book of Acts. This is a fulcrum. I looked that up in the thesaurus to use tonight. But this is a, a hinge where Acts sort of changes. We'll have another one pretty soon actually again in Acts. But this is, this is one and we'll see it tonight. But if we're looking at this cycle that we talked about last week, this is sort of that internal work aspect. And then we'll get to some other parts of the cycle towards the end of uh, our time tonight, but we're in that internal work. So the Lord, having, having brought his people together, having, uh, you know, after these events of, of Acts chapter five, we start to see that there's some difficulties that arise internally. And so it says the disciples were increasing. That's, side note, that's probably one of, one of the reasons some of these difficulties arise, more and more people more and more problems start to arise. But it says, in these days, the disciples were increasing in number, and a complaint came up from the Hellenists that rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected of daily distribution. So kind of want to start here. This uh, the situation that we see here is kind of, uh, it raises up sort of a different view of the church. We're introduced to two groups that we weren't really introduced to Before this, the group of the Hellenized Jews and the Hebraic Jews has these two different groups within the body. Uh, Inside the church there in Jerusalem, you had Jews who uh, chiefly spoke Aramaic and, and Hebrew and they were called the more Hebraic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, obviously, spoke Greek and we were more accustomed to sort of Greek culture, other Greek customs, things like that, more inclusionary of those things. Some of this may be that you still have, possibly, some of the Jews who came to Pentecost, visiting from other areas of the empire that were sticking around, either to, most likely to hear uh, the teaching of the apostles. Uh, some may have just been sticking around to because of what was going on, maybe they were serving, um, serving others, or found a found a sort of a, a place to to belong there in the family. But however that looks, what we have is we have these two different groups. And the the complaint comes from the the Hellenists, so it comes from the Greek speaking group of the church. Um, this. So we might think, well, we kind of took care of the issue of language. This probably wasn't arising because of different languages, you know, tongues and all that. Um, but as far as what, what they're comfortable in, in speaking and interacting with each other may have something to do with if these really are outsiders, people who don't live from that area but who are still hanging around. If you had come to that area and you didn't plan on staying for very long, You may not have a lot of friendship ties, family ties, those sorts of things. And so less opportunity for people to know possibly about need or possibly lacking those connections, almost having family advocates. You wouldn't have someone who would come and say, hey, grandma needs something. So they might be missing some of that advocation that you would normally have for people that were familiar, that were friends, that lived in the area. So that could be one possibility. The other possibility could be that legitimately they were just being overlooked. We're not given a whole lot of context to that, but looking at the previous chapters, looking at the previous situations, it would seem to be more so situational to them not having a lot of connections there, to them just being overlooked because someone was spiteful or wanted to to give to someone else instead of them. Because all the other descriptions are, they're all of one mind. They're all, they're all uh, together in one body. There is a feeling of family. So this seems to be, I think we'll see this through the passage, this is more so an issue of logistics. This is an issue of structure. And that's what they work on, is they work on some of the structure here. Um, but it's, in, it's, it's important to highlight the fact that it was this group, the the Hellenists, those who were of more so Greek culture versus those who were more of Hebraic sort of leanings that way. And it's it's important, you'll see why here in in a moment. But there's something else I wanted to, to highlight here, something I think that's really significant. And that's the words that are being used here in this verse. It says, now in those days when the disciples were increasing. This is the first use of the term disciple in Acts. Up until now, we've used the words family, uh, the assembling, the, the, the gathering, the, there's lots of different, the friends was used once, but we haven't had the word disciple used. And I think it's important. In this chapter, just in these first seven verses, you have the word disciple all of a sudden being used and used three times. And I think that's significant. It's significant because of what takes place. So you see it in verse one, and we'll highlight it when we get to it. But that word disciple, that is used all the time in, it's time to pray, um, that's used all the time in the Gospels, the word disciple. Normally when we say disciple, we think the 12. But there were more disciples than just the 12. It also included those who were continually following with them, right? Mary Magdalene is used of uh, in that group. Mary and Martha is normally thought of in that group as well. So there are more than just that, but but disciple was different than just followers or people who were enamored with Jesus or, or enjoyed his teaching. Disciple means something a little bit different. Disciple means someone who's actually following, following intently. And I think the, the example that we have in the beginning of the Gospels where Jesus calls Peter and James and John and Andrew and calls them to him and just says, follow me. And they drop what they had and they follow. They, they drop their nets. They literally stop what they're doing and they go. And they see the example of others who say, well, can I, can I follow you? I, w- I want to follow you. I want to commit to you, Jesus. And he'll say, ask him some questions and they'll all of a sudden start to maybe think this discipleship thing isn't, for them. Think of the example of the rich young ruler. There's some others that we have, but disciple means a bit more than just someone who gives a thumbs up to Jesus or is okay with Jesus. There's there's a bit more to it. There is a commitment factor that's there as well. And I think it's highly significant that this happens in chapter six. This just follows a story where all the apostles were taken before the Sanhedrin and Gamaliel talks them out of killing them but before they leave, they're beaten. So now imagine the 12 are there and it says in these days, so we don't know if it's the day after or around that time, but you can imagine you still see the 12 there with some effects of the beating, maybe still bruised, who knows. And they're their leaders. You might think, if you were going to leave, now's probably the time. If your leaders were all dragged in, barely made it out with being executed, beaten and sent out, the people who still show up, the people who still Come when the, disciples, when the apostles come. These are the disciples. These are the ones. These are committed ones. Earlier in Acts, just Peter and John. Now it's all the apostles. This is the pivot point. From here on, the persecution of the church extends not just to the leaders, but then extends out to anyone identified. And we'll start to see how that moves in the next few chapters. Verse two. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. So hearing about this complaint, they respond, they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, do you want to pause for a second? This is, it can read, this is beneath us. And I don't really think that's what's in line here. They say, is it's not right for us to, that we should give it preaching the word to serve tables? I think this more so has to do with the momentum that's already being uh, displayed in the church. Like you just said, this happens after they went to the Sanhedrin, they came back beaten They're ready to push forward Well, stopping that momentum, stopping going to the temple every day, stopping doing these things uh, outward, these outward teachings. It's like, we can't slow this down. It's not right for us to stop this forward progress for everyday tasks. They're not saying it's not important. And the reason we can say that is because of how they respond. They don't just say, figure it out. They say something actually pretty, pretty important. They say it's not right for us to give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good, or men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom. Um, and it says, To whom we will appoint to this duty. And so this duty is a, it's a daily thing, which is why I think that it, it, it chiefly has to do with food. If it was you know, where to sleep or clothes, you don't have to redo those every day, right? So it's most likely food, it doesn't say specifically, but that's what's thought it, of what it is here. They're going to take over that task daily. And they say seven, and you think, why seven? Well, you know, because seven, because the Bible, but um, in a city, in a town, if you were going to start a new town or something, and you had to build a council, you'd start with Seven. Seven members, which is a nice odd number, so if there's voting or whatever, it works. It probably would cast lots, but you see what I mean. Um, the seven f- seemed appropriate. We assume we're still in the thousands of people that are having to be thought about and cared for and ministered to. So seven seems, well, when you think of it that way, seven doesn't seem like very many. But seven sounds like a good number, at least to start. So you need to point seven. Now, I think it's worth noting here that what's, what's stated here is not find some people with management skills. We need some people who have maybe a business acumen. Find a few of the entrepreneurs because we gotta work with a lot of details and figure a lot of things out. No, the most important thing was someone of good repute. Someone who who was known and well-known and known to do well. Full of the spirit and wisdom. These are the other two factors. These are the most important things. These are the kind of people that you would want to accomplish this kind of task. So you can see here, this is not the beginnings of actually establishing a township. This is not the beginning of a business. This isn't the beginning of a corporation or even governance, really. This has to do with something. This is something else. This is something different. And it's probably not what we would have said or what we would have chosen. We probably would have put a lot of emphasis on real-world experience concerning leading in some of those things. And maybe these men all had that but that's not what's called out for them to to have. Maybe it is bound up in that a little bit, but you could also put all of those things under the category of wisdom. If they're full of the Spirit and they have wisdom, those are the kind of men that we want. So this is institution of not a job. They're not going to be employed. That's not the point. What they're looking for is structure. They're looking for a type of structure that will enable ministry to be carried out properly and according to the spirit of that ministry, particularly distribution of food. Verse four, it says, but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So there you get sort of the division. You have these seven will be in charge of these things, these daily things, these important things. The rest of us will be devoted to to prayer, to the word, to preaching, the things that we've seen them doing all the time in the book of Acts. Acts. Ministry of the Word, as they put it. Verse 5. <clears throat> and what they said pleased the whole gathering. That's good. There was consensus. This was not overbearing and say, hey, you just need to do what we, what we say. The whole group, everyone there, everyone gathered said, yeah, this is, this is a good course of action. This is something that we should do. I think now it's good to to sort of look at some of those, uh, the ramifications or the impact that this had because what we're talking about, in case I haven't been extremely clear, this is the establishment of deacons. The word deacon means those who wait tables, essentially, which I guess was called out, so that's on you if you didn't get it, I guess. Uh, no, but the, this idea and this concept of, of deacon is started here, and, and, and what we'll see, this is foreshadowing, what we'll see is these first ones that were called become those who are looked at as the pattern for what a deacon should be. So we'll have some interaction with these these men in the next couple of chapters. And so we'll see those things. But by the time we get to Paul writing to Timothy, these offices that you see delineated here, you have the apostles who concentrate on the word and prayer, and so how that looks in other bodies that are, that are planted, are, they would sort of be the elders that would step into that role. And then you'd have the deacons. So the apostles or the elders, depending on that situation, they would concentrate on the word and prayer. And then you have deacons who concentrate on the execution of service properly. And so those are the two roles that we see. In 1 Timothy, Peter goes a little, I'm sorry, Paul goes a little deeper into this. We'll see Peter in just a second here. Paul goes a little deeper in this. And when we went through Timothy, we, we obviously spent a lot of time on these, these passages here. So we're not going to be really exhaustive. But I do want to point this out. 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you look at verse 8. Deacons likewise, well, then we have to read the other parts. But first, in chapter 3, it talks about elders, overseers. And then deacons likewise, or just like what? we just talked about, must be dignified, not double-tongued. So the dignified part probably covers that of good reputation, right? That kind of starts to go into some of those details there. Dignified, not double-tongued, right? Not not liars They aren't deceivers. They don't do the opposite of what they say. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear, conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they provide themselves blameless so that kind of sheds a little light what's going on in Acts most likely this group of seven men were men who were already accomplishing the things they would they would have been called to do they were already ministering they were already tested it probably was not difficult to pick out these seven to say these are these are the men who should be leading this Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And I think one reason you have wives included in this is because being a deacon, serving in that way, serving the body, serving the family, is not just gonna be something that a deacon does alone, but the spouse is also gonna have to be a part of that. Whether that's actually part of the ministry or part of facilitating that or however that looks. It's not real specific, but it does say that there are some things for the wife to also uh, exemplify. Uh, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing, well that's just good all the way around, just one wife. Let's, we'll cut it off at that. Aren't many good examples of someone with more than one wife that is able to manage. So, Husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So these are seen as the um, qualifications, as we normally put it, qualifications for deacons. Deacons should at least have these things going on. This is going to be part of their responsibility. Now part of this thing that we we should highlight as well, is I think this also brings up the concept, the idea of roles within leadership. So with the establishment of deacons, we have sort of that idea of the apostle. Later on in other churches that was established, you have elders, overseers, and then you have deacons as well. So you sort of have this, this structure, this leadership structure. That you have there. I think that Peter actually gives us a good structure here to, to think about these things as well. In 1 Peter chapter 4, there's a couple verses I think will help to amplify this. Verses uh, 10 and 11. So 1 Peter 4, 10, 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Right, so this is Peter talking to the church, talking to the church of what they're supposed to do specifically talking about gifts as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God God's varied grace so this is talking about spiritual giftedness when the holy spirit comes that empowerment of the spirit will exhibit itself in giftedness to allow those who have been called by Christ to serve and to minister to serve and to minister appropriately in what God has called them to do. Look at verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks to the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the last, verse, the last part of this verse, to him belong glory and dominion forever, ever, amen. Don't forget that part. But what you have here is sort of this Uh, A very nice, laid out, really two categories of how giftedness will normally work. So you'll have those who are called to speak, speak the oracles of God, and then you have those who are called to serve. This fits so nicely in the structure that we've already get, uh, already have given to us, that we already have received from Acts chapter six, where you have those who are ministering in the word and prayer, and then you have those who are ministering in very practical ways. So you see that, that division right there. And notice here there's not um, a hierarchy given. It's just these are the two categories of giftedness that we receive. It's going to fit into one of those. <clears throat> a lot of times there's this idea of hierarchy because I think mostly because it's the apostles who Call for the establishment of deacons. So there's this thought of hierarchy as far as ministry goes. I don't know that's how it's exactly supposed to roll out. I say that because sometimes we think, well, I'm I'm just I'm just here to help, I'm just here to serve, I'll be in the background, someone else can be in the foreground. And that's how we have, I think, in the modern church kind of separated that out. If you read the next section of chapter six and chapter seven, that is not how this went out. This is not how it laid out itself as far as elders and deacons. You will see a very active, vocal, upfront set of deacons that we'll look at here in the next, uh, for the rest of chapter six and chapter seven. So this idea that, oh, deacons just do stuff in the background, they don't do really any upfront stuff, they don't really speak, that's not really the case. It will just mean that that's sort of their area of responsibility, possibly. <clears throat> so, what we actually have is these different roles that sort of take place, not as a hierarchy, as one is more important than the other, but you'll see that they're meant to just kind of be together. They, they, they sort of need each other, these different roles, these different categories, uh, these different types of giftedness. It's needed. What the apostles helped to establish here is just that structure. Now if we go back to 1 Timothy 3, what we see is right after it's talking about elders and talking about deacons, the very next thing it brings up is the household. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that you know that if I delay, you may know what you ought, or I'm sorry, you may know how one ought to behave in The household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The reason that these roles exist is because the household has to be run properly. It has to work. It has to be of benefit. And really, it's the elders, it's the deacons who then step out first or maybe exemplify, and the expectation is, is that everyone else will also follow suit. There's this idea that has popped up, and I think part of it has to do with the professional sort of aspect of the clergy. I never really liked that term, but you know what I mean. The clergy, those who who are in leadership, and it seems like in the West, or in the United States, or however you wanna put that together, you sort of have, there's the people who are professionals, they're professional ministers, and everybody else is a congregant. Everybody else just kind of shows up and they pay those people to go do those things. And sometimes it's even worse, it just comes down to one person that has to do all those things. And that is not sustainable. That's not sustainable in any kind of organization, any kind of family, that, that can't work. Has anyone experienced that? There's one person who's in charge of everything at a, at a job. Maybe it's just a job site. Maybe you're just going over to help. There's one person who's telling everybody what to do. No one else is really a part of anything. How long can that really last? Usually has to be supported by other things. Later on, doesn't work in government, doesn't work really any sort of place. Even if you think, well, monarchies, you know you've got like the king, he does it really, yeah, but a king has a court. The king has a lot of support structure to actually make people do what the king says. Um, but these kind of structures, that, that is not how God's household is set up. We have a father, we see the Father with the son, and we see how that relationship works. We see the Holy Spirit. We see how the Trinity operates and that's kind of the starting point for us, but we are called to be a functioning family and the only way that that can really happen in a group is if there is some sort of structure, some sort of exemplification of what should be happening. There, There's some studies done on church structure and ministry and they'd say that the healthiest types of churches have about 60 percent of attenders or members serving in some capacity, that would be seen as healthy. If you want to go by stats. I think If you want to go by what the Lord has called us to do, I think it's supposed to be closer to 100%. All of us are supposed to be in some way, some form, some capacity, serving and ministering. And really the establishment of elders, the establishment of deacons, really supports that that actually being accomplished and that growing. Just like every family, the expectation is kids will grow up and they'll go do those same things that they've seen exemplified. They'll go live those things out somewhere else. That's exactly the structure that we see in the church. That's most of what we see in the last half of of Acts is the establishment of those things. Going back to Acts, Acts chapter 6, If we look at the names here, verse five, not as many as you know genealogies or anything, but we've got seven here. Most of these names are Greek. I don't know, it doesn't say anything here that the apostles sat down and said, we have to find someone who speaks Greek because the problems, the complaints are coming from the Hellenists. We don't really have that stated here. I don't think that it hurt to have someone who would be able to know and understand Greek culture if that's really why they were established. But we do see that these ones here definitely do have some Greek experience at the very least. What's interesting is the last name that we see on here, Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. So he's a proselyte, not born a Jew, and he's from out of town. He's from Antioch. Spoiler alert, Antioch becomes important later. But you see someone who's not even in connection with Judaism at all except through being a proselyte who's in this group. But the qualifications were already laid. So these seven definitely would have fulfilled those and we see that if If anything, uh, if the other five are anything like Stephen and Philip, these were amazing men to put in place. Verse six, these they set before the apostles, they prayed and laid hands on them. All right, let's get weird for a second. Um, They came, they laid hands on them. This is something that we do, right? For Commissioning someone, if we're, we're sending someone, we'll come, we'll lay hands on them. And that's this is one of the reasons why. This is something that has been done ever since then. But here's a question. Where did anointing go? That would have been pretty common. That would have been something that was employed in Judaism already. We just don't, we don't really see it done at all throughout Acts. it that seems to be something missing. Because that would have been common to to have that. So um, an anointed one, a Messiah, when we say Messiah, we normally just think Jesus. It's not just Jesus who was the Messiah. He was an an anointed one and he was also the anointed one. But throughout the Old Testament and all the way up until Jesus, you had others who would be anointed for service. happened to fall into the three general offices that we see in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings, would be anointed for service. So priests were anointed, and we see that first established in in Levi, Levi, in Leviticus, to the Levites. So the Levites were going to be anointed for service, and this is done first to Aaron as the first high priest. So he's anointed in Levi, uh, Levi, I keep saying Levi. It was done to Levites for service, but it was written about in Leviticus chapter 8, in 1 Samuel, we see Saul and, and, and David both being anointed to be kings, and that's something that was done by a prophet who we also see was anointed. We see that happening in First uh, Kings uh, 19 with Elijah and Elisha. So we see the, this pattern. So the, they were, would be called little m messiahs. They were anointed ones. So wh- where did that go? When did we stop doing that? Also, next good question we call Jesus the Messiah, when was he anointed? When did that happen? But I think this, these examples that we see with the oil being used to anoint, I think where we actually see it is in the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew chapter three, verses 13 through 17. That's in the baptism of Jesus. That seems to be where Jesus' anointing takes place, and it makes sense, because the one baptizing Jesus was John the baptizer, who was the prophet, who anoints the king. But he's not anointed with oil. What would Jesus be anointed with? Came out of the water, and what was he anointed with? Well, oh, come on, you got this the holy spirit yes the holy spirit descends as a dove onto jesus this would seem like to be his anointing so if that's the case why aren't these seven commissioned with an anointing why sorry bingo I think they've already been anointed. They've already been anointed for service. When? At Pentecost. In the same type of anointing that Jesus received, they also received. So we don't see this anointing taking place in the same thing. And I think that's actually what the anointing was signifying. It's what It was the shadow, it was the precursor, it was the example, it was the sign before the real anointing would come. And so you don't see that special anointing coming on because we all are anointed. But if that's the case, then what does that mean for us? Do we have to have a special office in order to serve? If the Holy Spirit has come upon us, then what are we then anointed to do? If we have the Holy Spirit, we're all anointed to be in ministry. We may not be in a leadership type role. We may not be In one of those offices providing that leadership and example, but we are called to then serve. Let's look at verse seven. We'll finish this up and then we'll have some closing thoughts here. Verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase. This is where I think we get to that next part of the cycle. Now it goes out again. So we've had this internal work that God has done, some amazing things have taken place, and now they go back out. All right? So look at what happens. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples, again, disciples, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And then a side note. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Huh. That's kind of cool. Expands again. It gets bigger. It moves out from where it was, and now they're specifically stating here, or Lucas, that priests started to be really, started to see a pickup there with the uh, evangelism to the priests. With the response from the priests, which I think is pretty amazing. Don't know if this has to do with them meeting before the Sanhedrin or if this was just that next thing that the Lord was doing in their midst there in Jerusalem. That's pretty awesome. All right. A few closing thoughts here. We've talked about this before, but I wanted to kind of restate it. The establishment of the deacons was not to just find some superfluous structure. It wasn't to give some sort of promotion to people who needed it or something like that. The, the point of this was to provide structure and to provide definition of role in order that efficiency could be established. There, there would be an easier way for them to accomplish the ministry that they were called to. That was really the issue. There's, there's still a family model. and Again, this is not a corporation. This is not a government. This is a family. It's the household of God as we saw in our passage. And ultimately Jesus really is the greatest example of a leader that serves in both of those capacities. He was the one who stood up and spoke to thousands on the mountain and he was also the one who took off his outer garments, wrapped an apron around him, a towel around him and washed the feet of his disciples. It wasn't a menial thing for him It was a service thing for him. Peter even called it out. Jesus said, no, you need to let me do this. Here's the last thing. Service of any kind demands the spirit. A couple passages here just to kind of finish this out. Zechariah. Zechariah chapter four. I think here in Zechariah chapter three and chapter four we have... This example played out again. We have those different roles, those who speak and those who serve. Chapter four, look at like Zechariah's a wild book. Should, should read it. Um, we've got all these night visions, and Zechariah's like, I don't know what to do these things. And so he gets an explanation. So in Zechariah chapter three and chapter four, this is Zechariah being told there's these two men who are going to stand up, and they're going to be the leaders of this thing that God is doing. So this one mentioned in chapter 4 is Zerubbabel. He is commissioned, he is given the task by God to take away the rubble of the old temple and to rebuild the new temple. Chapter 4, verse 6, the angel says to to Zechariah, so, and then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord, Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but, but, uh, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel has to accomplish a construction task, but it's something he can only accomplish if he's filled by the spirit. He can only accomplish this construction task by the Spirit. You go back a chapter before, Zechariah chapter three. There was one other person who was called to lead at this time, and his name was Joshua, who was the high priest. Chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, this is Zechariah writing this, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity, your iniquity. Or I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, new clothes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. The high priest Joshua, who was called to help rebuild the priesthood and to be the spiritual leader, needed to be cleansed from iniquity. I think out of the two, we'd normally say probably the men on the construction site would need to be cleansed of iniquity and the priest would need the spirit to do what he's gonna do. But I think it's important to note that in this this here, it's flip-flopped in a way that we would normally not expect. It's Zerubbabel who needs the spirit and it's Joshua who needs to be cleansed for his work. And I think sometimes we mix up some of those things and we think I can do this thing but I can stack these chairs on my own I don't need the Lord I can provide a meal for someone without the Lord it doesn't really matter I can help distribute food without the Lord that's not a big deal that's not the structure we see in Peter Peter in first Peter it says for those who are to speak you speak as though you're speaking the oracles of God and if you're going to serve you serve within the strength that he provides and too often we think, oh, we got this. I got this one, Lord. Watch me serve. And I think we, we mix it up. And we forget that it was spirit-filled men that were called to be deacons. The Lord's ideals for leadership and service in the body are not necessarily what the world would would do. They're not the choices that the world would make. But this is God's household. So I would think we should probably do as the Lord has commanded in his household. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this word that you've given, Lord, this example. A very practical scene. There were people who were in need. Lord, you used the apostles to help to establish a an office a role to help facilitate that. Lord, thank you for the wisdom that you provide by the Spirit. Thank you for the examples that we see. And Lord Jesus, thank you for the examples that we will see throughout the rest of this chapter and in the next chapter to come as those who are truly and completely given over to your service. Lord, I pray that Whatever our giftedness is, whatever role you've called us to fulfill, whatever gifts that we have, Lord, that we would submit to you. I pray that we would use the gifts that we have, the resources we have, the talents, the wisdom, and Lord, that by your spirit, we would be those who would minister to one another, whether that's uh, teaching, whether that's a word of encouragement, whether that's service, whether that's facilitating resources, Lord, I pray that we would recognize that any of those things, Lord, we must do those things by the Spirit, Lord, that we might fulfill our roles within the family, within the household, and also outside of the church we might be able to, in a more proper manner, relay, Lord, your truth, the truth of the gospel, that others might see what we do and what we say, and thereby have a full understanding of who you are. Lord, I pray that we would not be those who are kept silent, but we would speak. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't sit back, but we would, Lord, allow our hands to be used by you to accomplish your your goals, your purposes, Lord. Lord, we pray for those opportunities that we have this next week, this next month, this next year, Lord, that you might be made much of in this city, in our neighborhoods, and in this county, Lord, we pray that there would many, there would be many who are called by your name, Lord, who would come, that would believe, and would be made part of your household. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.